Hey, dealmakers, and welcome to the show where it's all about financial freedom with real estate. Let's do this. You're listening to the Financial Freedom with Real Estate Investing Podcast, hosted by Garrett Lynch and Michael Blanc, where we talk all about how you can achieve financial independence through apartment building investing. Whether you're just starting out or you want to scale your syndication business, this is the show for you. This is the show for you. Today's guest is Eric Chatterton, and what what I want to hear from him is how in the world he was able to quit his job not only in 18 months, but more like seven months, and has built an impressive portfolio of over 700 units. If you want to know more about that, then stick around, because it's going to be awesome. Now, before we get into that, if you're interested in investing passively, we'd love to have a conversation. Our investing company is called Nighthawk Equity. You can go to nighthawkequity.com, click the join button, and schedule a call with us and explore if investing in our next syndication is for you. Again, we'd love to have a conversation with you. Also, I want to do a quick shout out for to Dustin, uh, who left us a review on iTunes. And he says, abundance of knowledge from both hosts and guests. If you think multifamily is the vehicle for you to build wealth, this podcast is an absolute must. So I appreciate that as well. Typically what we do is, co-host Garrett and I, we will banter about something related to the, to the market and the industry. And so kind of give you up to the minute knowledge of what's going on right now. Also, we want to highlight people who do their first deal uh, that have been influenced us by, by us in some particular way. And this week, it's going to be Chesley Garber. She was actually a mentoring student of Josh Eitinger, and she closed her first deal in August of 20 of last year. It was a 51 unit. It was $2.5 million with a capital raise of 1.5. And the reason it's so it's a little while ago is because we had Dealmaker Live a little while ago and we just we had 10 people there on stage uh, for first deal. And at the event, we discovered another 20. So there's a lot of people that are doing deals and making use of our, our programs and things of that nature. We just don't know about them. But more back to... Uh, Chesley. And so in November, which is literally like four, what, three, four months later, she closed a deal that brought her to financial freedom. It was a 192 unit that she bought for 13 and a half million with a raise of 3.5 million. Now, do you think she did that on her own? No, of course not. She had partners. She also had a mentor. And those are the keys. And we're going to get into that into the in the show as well. Both having a mentor and a partner are absolutely key to doing deals that are two and a half million and thirteen and a half million. So if you're interested in our mentoring program, head on over to themichaelblank.com forward slash mentor. You can schedule a call and just explore if mentoring is right for you. And it may be right for you if you want to accelerate your results do bigger deals faster and avoid some of the bigger mistakes. So we'd love to have a conversation with you around that. Now with that, let's bring in our co-host Garrett Lynch. What's going on, Garrett? What's going on, Michael? So what should we talk about today, Garrett? Let's talk about the Fed. The Fed. The Fed are <laughs> a bunch of, bunch of jack butts. So <laughs> the Fed, okay, that's a, that's a good one, right? Because we're all concerned about interest rates, right? And so they're going up and they're going up and they're going up. I think the Fed is bluffing. In fact, I need to have an Instagram post that says the Fed is bluffing. Really? Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. Well, they didn't. They didn't. Yeah, they weren't bluffing a couple of weeks ago. Well, so a couple. Okay, fair enough. They did not bluff a couple of weeks ago. But if you look at back at a year ago when inflation started coming up and, and and the Fed basically was denying it, and then they finally said, "Oh, it's transitory," right? Obviously, it's not transitory. And I was watching this. There's no way this is transitory. I mean, I, I was listening to some, uh, like uh, Peter Schiff, for example. I listened to him once in a while and just observing what's going on. I was like, dude, these are massive problems. This is not transitory. So the Fed is either lying 
or they're incompetent, just in general, just by that by that experience. Also, they're also responsible together with our U.S. government for all this quantitative easing, which created this inflationary mess. So I don't know. I, again, they're either lying or incompetent. But in this particular case, they did raise the interest rates by three quarters of a point to one and a half percent. They're probably going to do it again between a half a point and a three quarter percent next time. So we, they're going to end up at a, at a whole whopping three percent. So number one, back in the early 80s, when inflation was like this, in, the interest rate had to go to 16% before inflation came back down. And they're threatening of going to 3%. And there's no talk about anything beyond 3%. And the reason there's no talk beyond anything 3% is because unlike in the early 80s, where we had just under a trillion dollars in debt, now we have $30 trillion in debt. So if the Fed were to raise it a full 3% from where it was at 0% 18 months ago, debt service is going to be the single biggest U.S. expense. It's going to be bigger than all defense spending in the entire U.S. world. It's going to be bigger than Social Security that we're paying out as well. It'd be the single biggest expense. Therefore, the Fed actually can't afford to raise it much higher than 3%. Here's what's going to happen, Garrett. Here's what's going to happen. They're going to raise it to... They're going to raise it to 3% and they're going to threaten to be aggressive against inflation. Rich, even if they were to raise it to 8%, really wouldn't do anything to bring down inflation. Okay, so number one, 3% is, is a blip on the radar. But like I said, because, they're, uh, because debt service is going to be so expensive, we are not going to be able to afford our debt. And so we might be in danger of, of defaulting on some treasuries if we get much higher than that. And number two, these 3% interest rate is going to create a recession. In fact, some people already think we're in it. And that'll be probably later this year. Uh, there's argument how how deep it will be, but then what does the Fed do in a recession? What did they do in 2008 and what did they do in COVID? They go back to quantitative easing. So what they're going to do is they're going to lower interest rates and print more money. And this, of course, fuels inflation. Now, I don't like inflation. I don't like what it does. Okay. I do like it for real estate. So if if you guys listening and watching this can be in real estate, then you must be in real estate because it is the biggest inflation hedge that we have. I mean, inflation drove up our rents by 20% across the board last year, and it's going to continue doing that. And interest rates, even if they're rising, yes, our, our debt service becomes slightly more expensive, but it's not nearly going to be as high as inflation. So so this is kind of what I think. I think interest rates are going up. There's going to be a ceiling to how they can go up. It's going to create a mild recession. And then we're going to go back to quantitative easing. And in the meantime, inflation is going to be really high. So what we got to do, Garrett, is we got to figure out how to get ourselves into deals in the next like month or two, because it's a little challenging right now with the debt markets. But then medium term, it's going to be magical once things settle down a little bit. And even if there is a mild recession and some people may lose their, their jobs, it's going to drive people into rentals because they can't afford buying a home anymore. So for rentals itself, it's going to be, it's going to be good. I remain pretty bullish on that. But that's my outlook for interest rates since you're asking the Fed those knuckleheads. Yeah, I think that that's a good analysis. I think that there's, there's still a supply shortage for rentals which means that there is a demand to rent, right? And so, and then layer on top of it, the the supply shortage in housing, just in general, there's a really strong case for the fact that, that rents are still going to stay extremely strong and, and inflation just pushes things upwards. So if you're an owner of real estate, you're seeing all the positive impact and effects of that, of course, because the question is, where do you put your money? at this you're, you're getting it's getting eroded by inflation you don't want to put in the stock market you see what's happening there crypto 
all these other things, but but the one that still remains strong is real estate. And then layer on top of it, the, the best asset class inside of the real estate umbrella, which is multifamily, you know, you're, we're, we're talking about a good thing right now. I, I, I definitely think that your analysis is what I've heard different opinions, but I, I tend to agree the most with what you just said, Michael. So good rants right there. Thanks, man. Well, through my restaurant debacle, I've grown much more skeptic and cautious than I was before. When I got into restaurants and I plowed my net worth in restaurants, I only had happy ears on. I, mm-hmm. I personally guaranteed my leases and what could possibly go wrong. Well, it basically went all wrong. So it's not that I'm, you know, looking at this, you know, with blinders on. I'm, I'm still very cautious. We still got to get into these deals right. We have to underwrite them right. We have to get the debt right. Okay. But, but, and so I'm still skeptic and I, I do want to know you know, what, what are we possibly missing? But if I look at all the facts, getting in a multifamily in the medium term is, is fantastic. We just have to get in right in the, in the short term. So that's kind of how I feel r- r- about it right now. Uh, let's get to, to our guest here, Eric Chatterton. What I like about this particular interview, because we already had it, is that, you know, he was able to make the transition from his job and he quit right after his first deal. I would like to know why did he do that and how did he do that? And then how in the world did he scale to 700 plus units in 18 months? And some of the twists and turns and things he had to deal with, how he partnered, how he found the deals, how is he raising more and more capital? I think you're really going to enjoy this episode. Let's get right into the show with Eric Chatterton. Eric, welcome to the show today. Hey, thanks so much. Happy to be here, Michael. Hey, so, so you quit your job after you've done your first deal. So why did you do that? Why did you do in your first deal or not your third deal or whatever else? Why, why after the first deal? Well, you know, I had been in sales for, you know, 12 years prior to that. I was ready for a new challenge, something that stretched me, made me better. And, you know, 12 years of doing the same thing over and over, I was ready for something new. And so I was searching for multifamily, found it, finally started building some momentum, but I was you know, waking up every single day, I was ex- more excited about doing multifamily than I was my job. So that's when I knew I was in the right, going the right direction. So you had, you had some savings, I assume. And are you, are you, can you share what your acquisition fee was on that first deal? Yeah. My, my portion of it was 106,000. So it's, that's not insignificant. And what I find is a lot of times it's the acquisition fee that gets people to quit their job. It's not so much the passive income because that comes a little bit, you know, down the road, year two or three, but the acquisition fee is meaningful. Sure. You know, because mm-hmm. you got a burn rate of over ten, fifteen thousand dollars. Now you have a, a you know six to twelve month run runway plus your savings, and you're like, you know what? The faster I can get full time on this, the faster I can accelerate those results, which you did. I mean, you just share with me what you've done in eighteen months, and it's 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 incredible. But talk about before we get into that. You said you were doing sales for the last 10, 12 years or whatever. Why did you want to get out of that? Because it sounds like you had a pretty good thing going. Your life was pretty good. Yeah, you know, sales was good and. It taught me a lot. You know, I was in the solar industry, so I was putting solar panels up on roofs. Yeah, that's and, exciting. You know, yeah, it was a gr- great industry, great space. And, but I was just truly, you know, after 12 years of doing it, I, I just didn't have that, that spark when I would wake up. And except, and then I started doing multifamily and I found the spark again. And so I, I think that was just a clear sign to me that I needed to be going to where my, my energy was taking me. And so I wanted to put more of my time into multifamily. But yeah, no, my sales, my sales background definitely was going fine. But the last like two or three years, performance is starting to decline because I didn't have as much passion for what I was doing, and that was a you know a red flag to me. You know, it may help me realize I need to be put putting my energy and focus towards where I I do have that passion and fire. Yeah, but could you you just, could have just got another sales job for something you like more? 
you know, selling Ferraris or something, you know, why not that? Yeah. And why throw it, throw it out the window? Yeah. And, you know, I, I think I tried to, you know, figure out where my skill sets could relate in the multifamily space. And, but I think it stemmed from my family, my family, I grew up in a family that had real estate, you know, my whole childhood, both single family and multifamily. My parents had a 26 unit and a 42 unit building. But part of the reason why I wanted to jump into multifamily was they were self-managing all 10 of their properties, their single family properties, and both their multifamily. And I just saw that they were doing it wrong. And I wanted to kind of help them become more passive and help, help retire them. Yeah. I, I find that a lot of times people bring in their professional experience into the multifamily space. And they really play into their strengths and then they tend to joint venture or partner with with others who have who complement them. What what were some of your strengths that you brought in from your sales background? What did you find or maybe even your partners find useful about your background? You know, I think I think it just comes from, you know, learn to communicate really well over the years, you know, from doing some sales. But, you know, you talk to a variety of different people from all different walks of life and you learn how to communicate quite a bit better. And I think that translated directly over to, you know, capital raising, investor relations, you know, learning how to tap into social media a little bit more. But yeah, I think that's really where it was, was just forming good relationships. I attribute a lot of my success to the people that I surrounded myself with. So communication, relationships. What about work ethic though? And the reason I bring that up is because not everyone sticks with it, right? There's a lot of, lot of people who get really excited and they get into it and they kind of fall off. And with with yeah. sales specifically, you are taught that it's a numbers game, and you got to grind, you got to hit the phones, you got to just grind it out. And I I, yeah. I find sometimes people who don't have that kind of background, they kind of miss that piece. How how important is that? Do you think for your success? You know, I, I think it's I think it's huge because I, I think mindset's a, a big factor of this. You know, because. You, you have to learn how to be able to take rejection. I mean, we submitted 27 offers before we even got our first deal. And, you know, around 23 and 24, I wasn't nearly as motivated as I was, you know, one through five. And so having a good, strong mindset and being able to take rejection and keep pushing is kind of what kept me going. I mean, did you have any kind of, you know, some, some kind of maybe adult supervision that says, hey, keep going? Or are you are you at this point so self motivated? They're like, I don't care. I'm going to do this until I'm blue in the face. I'm going to keep putting in offers. Oh no, no way! I wish I could take all the credit, but I mean, as as much as I, you know, most of the time I was good, but you know, there were still plenty of times where I was like, man, will I ever get a deal? And I think a lot of new people coming in this space probably think the same thing. And I'm a firm believer that the only time you lose in this business is if you quit. So, so I uh, relate to the sales side for sure. I sold knives door to door pretty much for Cutco back in the day. What did you sell? I sold solar. I sold, I sold home automation. I sold satellite TV. And then I switched over to solar as my last product that I was selling. So, but yeah, I yeah. went door to door for several years. Ton of, ton of rejection there. So, part of what you're talking about right now is it's interesting because, you know, you, you almost get that training for rejection in sales. I think sales is the closest thing that you can find to entrepreneurship. So if, if I have someone I know that I care about, that's like, you know, I really want to be an entrepreneur. And, you know, I'd say the next step for them, if they, if they're just really not that, that person is, I think sales is the great training ground for that. So I can, I can see the correlation between, you know, the amount of offers you were putting in and, and maybe the rejection that you were feeling on the sales side. I mean, it, it definitely, 
you know, you kind of live for that one win. So you, you put in a ton of these offers, you finally got them. What was that moment like? And what do you think led you to that particular situation? It was a lot of emotions. It was emotions. It was excitement. And then it was also like, crap, like, what do we do now? (laughs) You know, like, what, what do I do? I don't know. And so, you know, thankfully you, you have, you know, teammates, sponsors, different people you can lean on to, you know, get these things done. Right. But, you know, yeah, it was very, it was really, really exciting. A lot of hard work finally came to fruition and it was really exciting, but also a little bit of fear. But, you know, in those moments, you lean on people that have done it before. So, yeah. So you kind of took your relational capital and then how long did you build that relational capital up before you actually did something with it? From the very beginning, you know, I, I was building relationships. I was raising capital. I was doing all sorts of things I could for the first seven months. And just trying to add value to other people. That was the way that I approached this thing. You know, how can I add value to you? How can I add value to you? And, you know, it's hard to add value when you don't, when you're new, you don't really know how to add value. But, you know, if you just keep putting yourself out there and trying, people will let you know what they need. And if you can fill that void, then well, you got a partnership. Ah, So another version of this bumping your head against the wall until you, until you figure it out. So Talk to us about like, how, how did you figure out what value you're going to add to somebody and what transpired from that? I'm just curious. Yeah. Give an example. Yeah. yeah so, you know, one example was like the part of the way I got into my first deal, there was, it wasn't even my deal. I got brought into it. I helped in a, a couple of different ways, but I actually through, I, you know, joined a mastermind group and, you know, did some mentoring and that helped a ton, but they offered us to be able to go do some due diligence and just go observe. And so I just volunteered and went and observed. And I just tried to help out as much as I could, help out the operators on that deal as much as I could during their due diligence process. And, you know, I actually made some good relationships with the operators on that deal and ended up getting brought into that deal for raising capital and also for helping with asset management because I was local to that market. But you didn't ask for a compensation up front. So it just kind of worked out that way? I offered it for free. I just wanted exposure. Nice. Yeah. This is so key. Yeah. Not everybody thinks like this. This is a really good point because, you know, if you give and give and give, eventually someone's going to be like, you know what, dude, come on, come on it. Even if you have no experience. And I don't think everybody approaches it that way there that maybe, you know, there's people out there that are looking for, all right, what, what percentage if I get, if I do this, it mm-hmm. sounds like you just kind of dove in there. Finally, you figured out a skill, you started doing the skill over and over again or whatever, you you kind of just started to learn. And I think what people get too hung up on is they're like, I have to be the just the deal finder or I have to be just the money raiser or whatever it is. But or the and I want is, these terms or I want yeah, these terms. I, I want, want these terms GP. or else. I want to get yeah. paid mm-hmm. like this. Yeah, yeah. You exactly. Know? They they get too caught up in like the specifics. And the reality is there's so many different ways you can add value into a syndication, into a partnership. And mm-hmm. the best way to figure out what you're going to add is just to go and try to do it. Even, even like you did just go and helping out with DD or whatever. Yeah. And, and I think people try to limit themselves too much as I'm this, I'm that. And because there's such a broad spectrum, the more of these skills you can pick up along the way, the more valuable you're going to be to any partnership. Like I've gotten to a place now in my career, 11 years in where there's not a lot of parts of the business that I can't do. I could pretty much do any part of it. Now I'd like other, some parts more than others, Mm -hmm. but the reality is, is, you know, I did, I cut my teeth on the deal finding. That was like my biggest value. That was where I went the deepest, 
But then I, I started adding all these other skills along the way. And not only that, it was about the, the skills that I wasn't good at getting just dangerous at it, just enough to be dangerous. I hated accounting going right. into this stuff. <laughs> I hired a consultant to teach me accounting because now I know I need that for the business. Hey, I want to tell you about our mentoring program because I'm just excited at what our students' results are. We have students routinely do their first deal because they're working with a full-time syndicator. And that mentor is helping them do their first deal faster. That first deal is a lot bigger than if they did it without a mentor. And they avoid some of the biggest mistakes that can simply make you want to quit out of the business. So if that's interesting, if you, if you value mentorship, check out our mentoring programs at themichaelblanc.com forward slash mentor. You can schedule a call with us and see if mentoring is right for you. And uh, we look forward to having a conversation. I'm curious, Eric, how did you pick up other skills along the way to get into that? position yeah i think it was just put like one through mentoring and coaching right i think that's huge if you guys have the, you know the opportunity to jump into some sort of coaching and mentor program i know you guys have one i'd 100 percent recommend it you know that jump started my you know my uh, trajectory in this space a lot but i just really let the personal interpersonal skills come out and just offered help as much as i could and even if i didn't know what i was doing i would i'd try to figure it out you have to be a little flexible with opportunity because if I heard you correctly, you made whatever, 27 offers or whatever. So you're looking for your own deals. Yet here you are, end up going with someone who and with a deal you didn't find. And, and a lot of people get hung up with that. You're like, no, it has to be my deal. And you said, you know what? It didn't have to, it doesn't have to be my deal. And, and, and this is so important to get into that first deal, really at all costs. We talked about not getting paid for it. I mean, that the value of that first deal, it just pales in comparison to what that first deal does for you, the track record it oh. gives for you and, and all that stuff. And this is why we talk about the law of the first deal all the time. And I'm curious, I don't know if you experience, experienced that as well. Once you close on that deal, you raised your capital, what did that do for your business? Oh, man, it, you're hitting on the head because right from that point on, I mean, we had instant credibility, everything changed. And, you know, regardless of how big of a piece of that first deal we were, it changed everything. Brokers took us seriously. The lenders did. Our investors that we had already built up took us more seriously. You know, it, it just opened up so many doors. And then also, you know, just other people, you know, that I'd connected with on Facebook, social media, and, you know, that led to another sponsor. And, you know, right after we closed the first deal, 10 days after that, we got an LOI accepted on our second deal, another 144 units in Houston. So it, it opened up all the doors I could have asked for. Yeah, that's pretty cool. So, how did you how did you scale? So, what I mean by that is specifically, you partner on your first deal. Did you do a repeat deal with all of those partners? With some of those partners? Did you do a um, a new partnership, or how did you scale yourself? How what did that look like on a partnership basis? Yeah, one of the partners from the first deal, her and her husband, just you know, really took a liking to you know myself, my team. And said, hey, we kind of want to take you under our wing. We'd love to sponsor your next deal. Let's start looking. And kid you not, ten days later we got the LOI accepted, and it, it was it was very exciting. That was a that was a fun one. Was that yours, or was that was that her deal? That, that was it. That was a deal we found. So every every cool. deal since then is yeah. Every deal since then has been right. ones that we've found. That's awesome. So so you said that she liked your team. What does that mean? You, you what team did you have built leading up to that first deal? Then so at, at that point, just myself, but also my team. So about a month into my journey, I realized there was way too many hats to wear for me to do this by myself. As talented as I would have liked to have thought I was, it still needed a bunch of help to do this. So 
I actually ended up bringing in my fiance's mom and dad as my business partners. And trust me, I was extremely hesitant to do that. You know, didn't want to mix the family and business side of things, but I'm actually grateful we did. It's actually brought us much closer. And yeah, I mean, it was going to go one of two ways, right? It was, you know, we close deals and everyone's happier. Well, we don't. And now I might not have a wife. So anyway, I'm grateful it went, it went the way it did. And my fiance's parents, they have skill sets from their previous, you know, careers that translated directly over into this as well. And, and we just kind of divide and conquer, stay in our lanes and we tackle these deals together. All right. So how do you do that? Because this is so important. What lanes are, do you, what, what are the lanes? How do you split up the partnerships with regards to roles and responsibilities? Yeah. So, so we have Brett and Megan Davenport, my fiance's mom and dad, Brett come, he's a Excel spreadsheet guru, numbers expert. He's been doing it for 20 plus years. And so he is now, he is our underwriter and acquisitions guy. So we all kind of source deals when they come up, but we send them over to Brett. He does all our underwriting. After it passes that, then, you know, kind of comes to me to raise the capital. So I do the capital raising, investor relations, social media, content creation, marketing, overall brand development to try to attract investors to us. And then after that, once we close, we pass it over to Megan. She does our asset management for each deal as well. And she's a rock star at it. Yeah, so really, she does everything, but she's, she's like our, she's our secret weapon. She's our MVP, but she focuses on asset management. The thing is, I understand is that you, you will always share roles because these are all small companies. So everyone's going to be involved in asset management. But what I've observed, the partnerships mm-hmm. that work the best is when there is only a single person accountable for one function. So only one person is accountable for asset management. Now, should the partners help? Yes, they should. But one person yes. has to be accountable. And I found partnerships that often don't work out is when there is muddled or confused or shared accountability. So that's pretty cool. So you've had a, a partner that was that second deal you found, and this other partner helped you basically raise capital for it. Is that was that the and then you guys basically are you closed on it and are operating it, and so this one partner is really focused more on the on this particular deal, focused on the capital raising. So the the sponsor on the second, you mean? Yes. Yeah. So she she helped with every, a ton of stuff. She just gave us a bunch of guidance, but she helped raise capital along with us as well. And just overall, just kind of overseeing things to make sure we're doing them all right. But it was great. Great hands-on experience working with her and her husband. Yeah. That's awesome. So where are you now in the size of portfolio, number of units, and a number of different properties, asset center management? Where, where are you right yeah. now? Yeah. 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 Fast forward to today, I got into the space December 2020. You know, it was a up and down road for sure. It, you know, it wasn't sunshine and rainbows by any means, but that's why I think mindset and you know, just being able to push through some of those rejections was key. But now you fast forward, we're about to close on our fifth large deal and that'll total 724 units. So that's amazing. What, what do you think? So as you grow larger, you're scaling, you, you have to figure out how to, how to have regular deal flow and how to raise increased amount of capital. What do you think are the, the keys so far? And, and it changes depending on your scale, right? You, you have different, vastly different problems at 2,000 units, et cetera. But getting to this point, what has been kind of the key to your ability to scale? The biggest thing is just surrounding myself with people that are better than me. You know, I'm putting myself in the room with people that know how to capital raise better than me and that can add value and come in as a partner on the deals. But I think that's a huge factor. You know, these deals are, you know, big enough to justify having four or five, six partners sometimes. And you know, I, I'd be foolish to think I could do it all by myself, maybe in, you know, a, n- a number of years, you know, several years down the road, I could, but it's also fun doing deals with people that you trust and love. And, and so we keep doing deals with the, the same groups. Yeah. 
Now, what's your outlook right now with where the, where the market is, you know, and, and do short, medium, long term? Because I think they may or may, may be a little different. Like, are you guys still buying? What is your long term outlook for, for the asset class? Kind of what is, what, what's next for you guys? Yeah, you hear different things, right? And there's different opinions all over the place. Right? You know, some people want to take a back seat for right now. Other people want to push the gas pedal down. They were kind of fall somewhere in between. We still want to be active. We still want to, you know, acquire some deals, but we're probably going to be a little bit more selective moving forwards, just with interest rates. And you know, out here in Texas, insurance is going up quite a bit. We just recently, you know, had an issue over there with that. But I think just be selective and just be extra conservative when we're underwriting these deals to make sure the numbers, you know, still work for our our investors and ourselves. So let me let me uh, let me talk to you about it because I had a I had a conversation with one of my peers who shall remain nameless, but you know he's a bit on the on the and you're right there is definitely a camp between the sitting mm-hmm. on the sideline and I'm just going to bull, bull board and like we are kind of in the middle as well. But this particular individual who has owned ten, oh, I mean, thousands of units, you know he's just very conservative and it's served him well. He's had a very long very long career. But my observation and discussion with him recently is if you're too conservative, you don't get deals done. Right. If you're too aggressive, you're going to get burned. So, how do you find? And let me give you an example. I want to see what, how you do it. For example, for the longest time, we used to under, underwrite, you know, rent increases before COVID at two and a half percent. We did this for years. Right. It served us really well. Well, you know, last twelve months, eighteen months, rents have gone up in many cases twenty percent and even higher, especially in Texas and where we are in, in Atlanta. And you're like, well, wait a minute. And we noticed this when when about four months after COVID, we lost a really big deal to an institutional buyer. You know, mm-hmm. and we're like, what is going on? Because these are sophisticated. Why are they outbidding us by such a wide margin? And they already saw inflation coming and we didn't. Mm-hmm. And so they took the deal from us because we're still using numbers from freaking three months ago. And sure. so that's an example. And of course, it turned out really well. And so so the clearer you can, you have your crystal ball and, and the more dynamic you are in your underwriting, the more you're going to win. So I'm just wondering how, what mm-hmm. you guys are, how you guys view that philosophically almost. Yeah. I mean, things have changed. You're out in Texas. Is that right? Uh, We're in Atlanta. You're in Atlanta. So yeah. I mean, a year ago, we were underwriting deals, you know, 500 to 750 a door for insurance. And, you know, this year we're underwriting at a thousand a door for insurance. And, you know, with even recently now we're, we're pushing that up even higher, closer to 13 to 1500 a unit, just to, just depending on the property, there's any lost friends and whatnot, but yeah, I think just being extra conservative in every aspect. But gratefully, you know, and thankfully, I've got Brett, who is a master of that stuff. And he, you know, gives me confidence when he sends a deal over and it fits our criteria. Well, I know that that there's extra meat on the bone. So what what areas do you like to be more conservative on? Because it's a bit of an art and a science, right? So it's, yeah. there's there's science behind, you know, certain things you just can't change. And then Others, you're like, you know, I'm going to add the padding in these areas. I'm just curious, what areas do you prefer the padding to be in, in this environment? Yeah, I think rent growth and insurance, especially those. Yeah, those are the main ones, really. And I would say, I mean, 1500 bucks is a lot per door when you're underwriting TL. So it's, you know, if there's some extra there, then you're doing good. So, yeah. So what's your advice to someone you know, listening to this right now and thinking, should I, should I wait or should I not? And if so, how should I proceed? Like, what's, yeah. what do you think? I, I go back to that, you know, the saying, I hear it all the time. It's like, you know, wait and buy real estate or buy, buy real estate and wait, right? And I, I like option two better. 
buy, buy real estate and wait and just make sure you've got a good team that's been around the block and, you know, been through multiple market cycles and, and knows what they're doing, you know, so you have confidence moving forwards. Yeah, absolutely. So what's, what's next for you guys? Like, you know, let's, let's, let's fast forward maybe, I would say two or three years, which is a long time in this business, right? Have you, have you thought about what, what your company might look like? I mean, that's going to be a really exciting time for us, man. I, that's going to, when, right when we're going to start exiting our first deals. And I'm, I don't even know what that looks like yet. So I, I think, you know, I would, I would almost reverse the question back to you guys and say, Hey, you know, when you first exited your first, you know, two, three, four deals, you know, what'd you guys do with it? Did you reinvest it? Did you, you know, what was your guys' plans? Cause that's going to be a fun, a fun time for us. It depends on the market, right? I mean, so far we've been reinvesting Yeah, you know, we've been definitely mm-hmm. been when rolling and the challenge is, is, is the underwriting changes so, so rapidly. And so loan to value goes going down, interest rates going up, this escrow here, this insurance thing here. So, you know, you, you really have to stay, stay nimble, but, but in general, long-term we're, we're bullish on the asset class. The, the key mm-hmm. for us short term is how to get into it. So, you know, we saw a lot of people get into at the height, which was probably March, probably the height of the the pinnacle of prices. And man, they paid they paid a pretty penny for it. And so now it's of course worth less, as we all know. Are mm-hmm. they losers? Maybe, but probably not. Okay. So they now they got into the game. Did they overpay as we sit here? Yes, they probably did. But how about next year? Okay, next year, they're probably gonna be laughing at us for having got into a deal that we let's say let's say lost, right? So I think the key for us is how do how do we get into there, especially how, how do we get the debt right that allows us to to get in there now that the debt is is changing and it's kind of you know wacky right right now. We saw the same thing after after COVID. So long term we have a pretty good outlook. This short term is how do we get into a, a deal? And we did it twice with after COVID. And it was primarily because we got into the right debt, a different debt product because bridge loans lending went away. And then we were able to educate sellers who had unrealistically high expectations. And we were able to, you know, get into two deals like like that. So I don't know. What are you guys doing? There's always a give and a take, Michael. And you know, if you're going to have like the best debt ever and it's that time frame and it's, you know, maybe what we were seeing a few months ago, you know, then prices are going to be affected in in a way. And I've like in, in a way where they're rising. Right. So it, and then if you, you get into an area where you, you have kind of uncertainty, like right now, we're seeing a 10 to 15 percent reduction in the prices of real estate, which is an opportunity. And so, so that then, like you said, it's just figuring out, okay, what, what mechanism, cause you still have to set things up behind the scenes properly. You can't just throw that to the wind. That's super important. And so now it's just figuring out, all right, what is that behind the scenes going to look like? So I can take advantage of this opportunity that exists in, in the marketplace in general. And so, you know, Eric, for, for you guys, I mean, are you, what kind of debt are you guys looking at right now? Like particularly just curious, are you guys looking more at agency, more bridge, you guys looking at like, local banks. We've been doing bridge debt, but you know, I think we're we're wanting to be, you know, kind of pull back a little bit on that. You know, variable rate rate caps are expensive as heck right now, and so we're we're learning that as we speak. But yeah, I mean, we've we've done you know four deals in Houston and the one in Dallas, and I think we're going to start one kind of pushing back up into the DFW market a little bit more just, you know, larger rent bumps up there. But, but yeah, that's, I, we'd like to kind of look back towards agency if the, you know, if the terms look good. So it's just kind of the debt's a big factor, you know, it's a big factor. 
Yeah, I agree. So a little bit to figure out here in the, in the short term, but I think with Garrett yeah. and, and you, Eric, there's going to be a lot of opportunity in the next six to nine months. And man, I surely would like to capitalize on it because that, you know, that was that's, what I, that's how I feel. You, just get, you don't want to compromise your 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 underwriting on it. But we'd so, still we'd still love to do between five hundred and a thousand units a year. But you know, I think you just have to be a little bit more selective on the types of deals you're doing and and where. What's your advice to someone who's listening to this right now and? wants to be like you, Eric, right? So you were 18 months ago. You're like, man, this job sucks. I want to get out of this thing. <laughs> what are some of the steps that you advise that they should do over the next you know, 30, 60 days? Anytime you can put yourself in the room with people that are doing what you want to do is, is a good time. So just keep putting yourself in those situations. Go to multifamily conferences, go to multifamily meetups, go to events, You know, take advantage of a mastermind or education program. I think all of those things will help really propel you in the right direction. You know, it's not you know, not to say you can't do it on your own and learn this thing, but you know, you can really put yourself on a fast track if you if you put yourself at the, you know, get a seat at the table with people that are actively doing this and doing it at a at a high level. So put you said put yourself in the right room. Let's just just go I'll pick on that one right now. Why do you think that's so important and maybe why was that important to you? What does that do for you if you put yourself in the right room? They say it all the time, but your net worth, your network is your net worth. And anytime you can get around, like, you know, the amount of conferences, when I first started, I went to multifamily meetups or conferences several times per month. You know, whatever conference there was, I was going to it. Whatever meetup there was locally, I was going to it and just really just, you know, asking people about them, their business, their life. Naturally, you know, it's human nature. They're going to start asking you about your business, your life. And that's when you can start building a relationship with them and, and maybe, you know, find an investor, or maybe find a sponsor, or maybe find a business partner, or, you know, maybe find a local boots on the ground, someone in that particular market. And just always being on the lookout for potential partnerships. Eric, couldn't agree more, man. I think when I was restarting, so I, this is my second real estate business with Michael and Drew. And a really key part of it was just getting into that room. I, I made the agreement with myself that I was going to go to at least two events, major multifamily events per month for a year. Mm-hmm. And out of that, I, I found this new amazing partnership. So just getting around people, just talking to people. And and then I built an amazing network as well. So I couldn't agree more with that. Eric, how can people get a hold of you if they want to find out more about what you got going? Yeah, I'm all over, uh, you know, the social medias, you know, all of them. I primarily use Facebook, LinkedIn, multifamily stuff. The Instagram is more of a little bit of a personal page, but anywhere online, or you can just, you know, find me and my contact info at www.gibbyscapital.com. That's G-I-B-B-Y-S capital.com. And you can find info on my, my team and what we're doing there. Awesome. Well, it's been great to have you on the show, Eric. Thanks so much. Yeah. Great chatting with you guys. I really like this observation around putting yourself in the right room. And, you know, we just got done with Dealmaker Live where we had 500 people in the room. And you know, we had a wide spectrum of people who had never done a deal, but then we had some heavy hitters in the deal, right? And so being around, in fact, I had my, my own personal mastermind on stage here. And it was, it's great to banter with these guys and really putting yourself in the right room really opens up your mind. I was at another, another conference recently, not related to multifamily. I was around surrounded by marketers because I wanted to improve my marketing. And these guys are all performing at a super high level, much higher than we are. And we said we're pretty doing a pretty job. So when you're around people like that, you can see what's possible. And you're like, oh, I can make a million dollars a month. Really? 
well, how do I do that? And you start asking the question. So I really like that advice, Garrett, about putting yourself in the right room. Yeah. You know, we, and we just had Dealmaker Live, which was, was cool. And there's, there's all different levels that, that show up to these events, but if you really want to see what's possible, you go to these things and you talk to people and you're like, you know what? I could do that because think about when you're at, you're at home or you're in your environment where maybe there's peers around you that they just, they don't understand what you got, what you're trying to do, or maybe they're not the best influence in the, in that group of five that you hang out with. How are you going to escape that? How are you going to put your mind in some other place to be able to reach your goals and your dreams in real estate or in really in any industry. And this is an opportunity for one weekend or for one week or whatever it is to jump into that, into that environment. And, and it could change your life forever. I mean, even the ideas that you were able to take away from this recent conference that you were at could change our whole business. So it's, you know, you walk away with, with a new group of friends, potentially new ideas. I think it's so powerful. Yeah. And I think, you know, to go along with that, I think he was, really keen on not just building that relational capital, but then actually going and adding value to the people that he met, which I thought was pretty unique. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely right. And, and you know, just figure out what, what, what value can you add to a person? And it could be anything. It could be, I'll help you underwrite for free. I'll help you look at articles and that are relevant. I'll go to this property and take pictures for you. What is that thing, right? Provide value. Most people are just there for asking. Hey, can you look at this deal? What? That's an ask. Like, how does that help me? Okay. Figure out what will help another person. That's how you get your foot in it there. And I really like that. The other things, of course, is, you know, we have the theme of a mentor coming up over and over again. It's certainly something I did not value when I got started with, with restaurants. And certainly when I got in apartment buildings, who needs a mentor? Because I, I already know everything. I'm, I'm pretty smart and, if, and I can figure things out. And that cost me dearly. And people who do work with mentors, like for example, Eric can do things so much quicker. So again, check out our mentoring program. We'd love to have you. It's at the michaelblank.com forward slash mentor. And regardless of what program you join, because there's others out there, the other thing is said is you got to build your team. You got to get in the right room. And you know, basically my advice is to find an ecosystem that you resonate with and then just go deep with that ecosystem. Let's consume all their programs, all their mentoring, all their networking events. And again, we'd love to have you in there. We have a, a very vast network where we put together deal finders with capital raisers. Uh, but find that environment, right? Because no one in the multifamily space does it does it on their own. So find one and and learn the art of joint venturing. And we, I love how he <laughs> how he broke up the roles in his joint venture. That was pretty cool. So. You guys, I hope this was an inspiration. Don't be freaked out by what's going on. Yes, be cautious. Adjust your underwriting. Look what's going on, but really look for the opportunity. Don't sit there and wait for it to pass because once it passes, it's going to be too late. Figure out how to get a deal right now. So hopefully you guys were inspired by Eric. Catch you guys next episode. Thanks for listening. Take the next step toward financial freedom by checking out our Freedom Vault, where you can find free resources to help you with apartment building investing. Whether you're an active investor just starting out or looking to scale your syndication business or looking to invest passively, head over to themichaelblanc.com vault to gain access to our Freedom Vault.